Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and this is episode number 274 of the show, and uh, part number four of our series that we're doing to kind of kick off the new year called New Ideas for the New Year. Uh, We're looking at uh, eight episodes over the course of eight days, January 1st through January 8th, a different topic, a different conversation every day from various people, from various backgrounds, taking us into different stories and different ideas. And uh, all of these episodes are not for everybody, but I think there is an episode for everybody, right? This is a wide range (laughs) of topics. Uh, We talked about astrology, then we talked about Jesus and his Aramaic tongue, uh, his native language. Uh, We talked about deconstruction yesterday. Uh, today we're talking about Dharma, the uh, Hindu concept of Dharma. Uh, later on in the series, we've got tarot coming up. We're going to be talking to a medium. Uh, we're going to be talking about more Jesus things, all sorts of different ideas. And so I hope that there's something here for everybody to take away and feel inspired as they kind of kick off uh, a new year. So today we're talking to Sunil Gupta. I want to read for you really quick. Sunil has a documentary series on available on Amazon Prime. And the series is called Business Class. I want to read this to you really quick, the, the kind of the blurb they have. Uh, in Business Class, award-winning writer Sunil Gupta travels across the world, exploring extraordinary businesses and diving into the lives of the innovative entrepreneurs behind them. Follow Sunil as he uncovers the challenges that entrepreneurs face every single day and unique ways that they have overcome them. Uh, Sunil has written a book called Everyday Dharma, Eight Practices or Eight Essential Practices for Finding Success and Joy in What You Do. Uh, Dharma is kind of like your essence in this life, in this world. And he talks in his book about how to discover it, how to find it, how to discover it, how to live it. And Sunil is a storyteller. And if you get this book, you're going to see right away, it's filled with stories uh, of people who have found and are living their essence. He talks in the book about how he lost it, how he rediscovered it. Uh, he ties it into this concept of dharma. And it's just, it's so, there's so much in this book. And everything I just said does not at all do it justice. <laughs> so ignore what I said. Uh, as I've said so many times when I try to introduce <laughs> somebody uh, for the podcast, they they can explain it so much better. But this book, I loved this book. Uh, it's definitely one I'm going to go back to uh, again and again. But we, we talk about a lot of things here. So Neil shares some of his stories, some of his life, um, and some of what he does now. And just the, the passion that he has just leaks through everything he does. And I have to say that like, I, I don't think I've ever had a guest on the show who has been as intentional as Sunil with encouraging me both on the podcast recording and off the recording, like it was very clear to me that he actually listens, has listened to multiple episodes of the show because of the things he was saying to me about it. And he was really just like encouraging, just like with the work that we're doing here in the podcast. And I was like, I was like, I'm gonna go find this man and give him a hug. Because <laughs> with all the sometimes all the critique that comes my way, you know, in comment sections and every once in a while through email, uh, sometimes it's easy to kind of lose sight of my own essence and in the way that I'm living it in the world. But Sunil uh, was just so intentional with kind of pointing that out to me and really shining a light on it and made me feel 
awesome. And so you've got to get this book, uh, Everyday Dharma, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Success and Joy in What You Do. Uh, I'm going to put the links to his stuff in the show notes. Uh, also in the show notes, again, links to my books, Rethinking Everything, Emerging from the Rubble, and also a link to support the show. You can do a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can do a one-time uh, donation through the website. There's a support page with like a portal. You can go in there and you can leave uh, a donation. Any donation, Patreon or whatever, gets you entrance into our Discord group. It's kind of like a chat community that we chat around uh, various topics throughout the course of the week. Some weeks it's really quiet. Other weeks it's hopping, uh, depending on the day and depending on, on what's going on. So uh, we'd love to have you be part of it. It's a lot of fun. Just a place to kind of meet new friends and realize that you're not alone on this crazy journey uh, of, of life. So anyway, all that to say, my friends, that's it. Episode 274 with my friend Sunil Gupta talking about everyday dharma. Enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're sitting down with a brand new guest. His name is Sunil Gupta, and he's written an incredible book called Everyday Dharma. And the subtitle is Eight Essential Practices for Finding Success and Joy in Everything You Do. And so Sunil, uh, welcome to the podcast. I love the book. I love your work. And thanks for making time for us. Glenn, it's it's great to be here. And the feeling is mutual. I, I love your show and and uh, just the sense of, I think, just genuine curiosity you bring to each conversation. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you. So before we uh, dot, take, take like a deep dive into your book, can you tell us a little bit about uh, you, especially for people who aren't familiar with you and your work? Who are sure. you? What are some things you do? What's your order at Starbucks? Tell us what we need to know. <laughs> <laughs> all, the, all the essentials, right? That's right. <laughs> I um, So I'm an author uh, and an entrepreneur, um, former, I should say, entrepreneur. I um, spent uh, many years in in Silicon Valley working uh, on new companies, new projects, new technologies, Mm -hmm. um, and uh, didn't really sort of feel like I was on my path there. Um, And it was kind of clear. I I had started two companies that had failed um, before I started one that worked. Um, and even after starting one that worked, I was kind of like, wow, this, this joy that I was supposed to feel, uh, didn't really linger. I felt, you know, satisfaction for a temporary amount of time. And then all of a sudden I felt dissatisfaction again. Um, and so I started to, to do a deeper search and really think about kind of what it is that, that, you know, fascinates me. And and for me, that's storytelling. I love, Mm -hmm. I love learning people's stories. Um, and one of the things that I sort of was realizing is that the the, the narrative out there in the world, um, especially about people that we sort of admire, people who have achieved great things, is really a success narrative. When we talk mm-hmm. a lot about how they win, but we don't talk enough about how to lose. Um, what were all the pitfalls, mistakes, um, setbacks, failures that happened along the way? Um, so I started to kind of go deep into that. I started to study what I consider to be the highest performers in their lowest moments. Mm-hmm. And I started to write about that. I started to um, you know, journal about that. I started to teach eventually at Harvard Medical School about that. 
And it, it really kind of brought me to the books that I've been writing, including this newest one called Everyday Dharma. Yeah, I think it's, you know, we, especially in our world of social media, like it's the highlight reel, right? We see all the the people who made it and we see all the highlights of people's lives, but we don't realize that there, there is a story behind those highlights that we often don't see. Yeah. And, and I think the, the end result of that, you know, I think, you know, for you and I, we, and we're both, we're both fathers. And I think, I think, mm-hmm. I think about this for my kids as well. If all they see is the highlight reel, yeah. then I think that there, there's just naturally sort of this belief that starts to stem up that I am not good enough, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not enough to go do these things. Yeah. You know, I, I think that um, when I look at sort of my family story and, you know, my mom was a refugee who, you know, became, you know, something way more than anybody around her thought she was going to be. She became an engineer with Ford Motor Company and, mm-hmm. you know, escaped poverty, got on a boat to the United States. Um, but one thing that, you know, she made me aware of throughout her life is that, you know, she didn't necessarily have like, you know, she wasn't she wasn't unafraid. You know, she made it very clear that throughout all of that, like there was a lot of fear and there was a lot of uncertainty, but that fear and uncertainty can also be coupled with action. But if on the other hand, you know, I sort of saw her as this courageous, naturally sort of, you know, brave type of person, then I that story, while inspiring, would have been very inaccessible to me. It would have been like, well, I don't feel that because I feel afraid. Yeah, and and if I feel afraid, then that probably means I'm destined for something different than than the people who achieve something. I think one of the most powerful moments for me so far as a father, uh, I, I was just having, a, over the summer, I was having a, just a bad day. My father had passed away in March and the summer was very difficult. And so I was home with my daughter for um, pretty much every day because my wife was in, was in school. And I was just having a particularly difficult day. And I know that my patience were short and everything else. And I said to my daughter, mm-hmm. I'm like, Jordan, daddy's just having a really hard day today. Mm-hmm. Like daddy mm-hmm. is just feeling like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing, I'm not being, a, I feel like I'm not being the best daddy today that I could be. And she yeah. was just so like graceful, but she was also so like, I could see like a light bulb go off in her head. Like, oh, like daddy's not perfect. You know what I mean? But like, that was yeah. okay. Like that was a good thing. And then I think that gives her permission to not be perfect, you know, as well. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm really reflecting right now. I, I always sort of have a saying that I'm just, I just kind of keep around, you know, mm-hmm. whenever something like hits me hard, mm-hmm. I will write it down on a post-it note and I'll just kind of have it on my desk. And usually I just kind of, I, I have one saying at a time that I'm reflecting on for a period of days. And right now that saying is may all parts be welcome. Mm. May, may all parts be welcome because mm. I think that we can get conditioned to sort of see these things like even anger or frustration or irritation as these things that we shouldn't have. Um, and I, what I realize is like how much energy I have spent trying to push these things out that are just really kind of just a natural part of who we are. That's right. All right. So everyday Dharma, uh, yeah. a lot of our listeners come from uh, like myself, a very evangelical fundamentalist background. And in that world, it's like it's our way or the highway when it mm. came to life and God and spirituality and kind of pretty much everything. And so for me, like when I was reading your book, I was thinking to myself, like, I rarely have heard this word Dharma in my mm-hmm. context growing up um, outside of, I can remember teachers saying it was very like new agey or was a tool of one of those other religions that we should stay away from. Mm-hmm. So I obviously no longer align with that thinking and neither do our listeners, but I think it would be helpful given the context that many of us come from and that baggage that we may be carrying, if you could maybe reset our understanding of what this word Dharma 
is like what is it and what are the origins the origins of it yeah i mean glenn part of the reason that i'm really like excited about this conversation is because i feel like in some ways we we sort of have lived a similar journey you mm. know i grew up i grew up understanding sort of the fundamentals of hinduism um, you know, I was uh, trained in in classical Indian music, what we mm. call bhajans, you know, what you might call sort of hymns. Um, and even though I didn't, I couldn't read Sanskrit or Hindi, I would memorize these songs and I would sing them at our temple. And I became sort of known as this little kid. I was like four or five years old who could, you know, just sing these incredibly long bhajans. Wow. And um, and um. You know, for that reason, I developed a really, I think, special relationship with, you know, a lot of the elders in the community. And and especially when I went back to India with my grandfather, like he loved that. He loved that about me, that I was sort of embracing kind of my Indian roots in this way. And ultimately, my Bauji, my, my grandfather is the one who sort of taught me about Dharma. Um, but when I went back to the United States after sort of spending time with him, I was like seven years old. That's when the realities of sort of being like an Indian kid growing up in the United States began to set in for me. Mm. You know, I, I I grew up in pretty much an all white neighborhood. And and, you know, uh, by the time I was sort of 10 years old, we were sort of, you know, we, we were in our first sort of, you know, war with Iraq. Mm -hmm. uh, George W. Bush was president at that time. And I remember how exciting it was for the kids in our school. But there was also sort of this awareness that the people that we were fighting were the people that, you know, had my color skin. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that was not a fun time for me. I, um, you know, I did everything that I could to blend in at that time. I, I would overwear Bruce Springsteen t-shirts that said born in the USA. There were times where like, you know, I'm ashamed, like really, really ashamed as a father of two girls with brown skin to admit that like there were times in my life where I would cake baby powder onto my face in order to make myself appear more white. Um, these are the things that I, I did to try to fit in. Um, and certainly anything that sort of, you know, had a had an essence of, of spirituality or Eastern, um, including Dharma, I distanced myself with everything that I could, you know, and I saw it as, 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 you know, a woo woo sort of thing. And I would make fun of it. And, and, um, it wasn't until many years later, um, after being in sort of, I think, the Western world of grit and hustle and just burning myself into literally the ground at a point where sort of I felt like I was depressed. I was I felt empty inside. I felt like I was putting in all this effort and falling further and further behind that things really started to open up. There's a um, there's a Sufi saying um, that I always come back to, which is the world will break your heart and break your heart and break your heart until one day your heart will open. Mm -hmm. And it's from that openness that you find love. It's from that openness that you find true strength. Uh, for me, I think what happened is I found curiosity. I found I found curiosity um, about not only sort of you know other people, um, which has led my work, but I found curiosity towards these roots that I had left behind, um, and that's kind of what took me back into Dharma. I can't imagine what that was like. I remember when I was in college when nine eleven happened, and I was in you know the the Gulf War. I was I don't remember how old I was during that time, but I can remember just all the all the different animosity, you know, towards people who had darker colored skin or, you know, assumptions were made about certain people. And 
Yeah. I can remember when I worked at Apple, I worked with somebody who wore a turban and just some of the things that customers would say like about him mm-hmm. and things like mm-hmm. that. And just like, I can't imagine what that was like for you. You know, I, I think, yeah. I think, um, you know, I had members of my family and close friends, you know, who did wear turbans yeah. and, you know, after nine 11, it, it was kind of like, you know, I remember being surprised and, and, you know, there was almost this mix of like fear and, but also just amazement at some of the the, the people I know who said, no, I'm not going to change who I am. Right. I'm going to continue to wear a, a turban, you know? And one of those people who I talk about in the book is my uncle, our Christian uncle, who, you know, was just this just like just joyful sort of character. You know, yeah. he he was always the first guy out on the floor at a wedding, you know, out of the dance floor. <laughs> right. He like had this, he had the, you know, if you ever watch like Indian, like Indian dancers, there's this little shoulder shake move. Yeah. <laughs> and and he just had that down, man. He was like <laughs> the best at it. And and like, you know, there was this one day that my mom, you know, said Har Krishna uncle was an amazing golfer and she's like you're gonna go golfing with Har Krishna uncle and you know, I want you to learn from him and I'm like I I man I don't want to show up at a golf course I do not want to show up at a golf course in my own town with a with with a man wearing a turban yeah. you know it, it, it would it would it would and and it was just absolutely something that would be like social suicide for me yeah, yeah. or I was already getting bullied at school and she's like no you're going and that's it and mm-hmm. so you know we we show up and of course you know the biggest baddest bully in the whole school the kid who probably hated me the most and his friends they happen to be there at the golf range just when we are and yeah. i mean it was just kind of like it was kind of like you know the 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 racial insults were like it was it just it just came hurling at us like you know did you guys ride a camel here I didn't yeah. know your father was Saddam Hussein all, all this stuff but I still remember and and this was this became I think for me a really important part of the book I talk about this in the context of a chapter calling finding comfort in the discomfort mm-hmm. our Christian uncle you know he he taught me that day that you know we can't always run away from the pain but what we can do is we can start to find ways to find little moments of comfort in these you know moments where we feel disturbed and we feel irritated and we feel attacked and one of the simplest ways to do that is by finding what i now call a home base some place inside that you can go to where even if the outside world isn't giving you love you can give yourself love and that can be as simple as literally putting your hand over your heart, putting your hand on your chest and taking a couple of breaths for other people that I coach now and, and lead these, you know, executives and leaders who are in very, very tense moments. It's a, it's a mental, it's a visual gesture, right? It's literally going back to a place they enjoyed as a kid. Or if you have a pet, almost kind of conjuring up what it feels like to pet your dog. But there's these little sort of home bases that we can create for ourselves inside these tense moments that don't make the irritations or disturbances go away. But what they do do is they create some space between the impulse, between the thing that is disturbing us and the way that we respond to that thing. And as Viktor Frankl, neurologist and Holocaust survivor would say, in between that impulse and the way we respond to that impulse is a space. And inside that space lies our freedom. So how does all that tie into dharma like what is we had if we had a late if we had to put a definition on dharma and tie all that into it uh what would that be so dharma is your essence it is this part of you that really wants to speak and Mm. when you are expressing that essence 
you come alive in a brand new way. You you feel confident, you feel creative, you feel caring. Hmm. But when you're not, when you're sort of bottling this part of you up, you can feel really depleted. You can hmm. feel really lost and empty. And I think so many of us are feeling that way right now. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that we do our best in society to separate work and life, right? And But the reality is that they bleed into each other in a really profound and human way. Yeah. The number one uh, determiner for mental health for most people in, in the United States is their job. It's what they do each day, mm -hmm. right? And so even if your life looks great from the hours of 5 p.m. to 10 p.m., but you're miserable from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., yeah. there is a there is a ceiling over how satisfied you are with your life, right? Yeah. And so we can't separate these things the way that maybe we have sort of been conditioned to. Um, and then the question really is, how do we start to reclaim some sense of joy in our job? Um, and I think that's what really brings us back to essence. How do we start to align who we are with what we do in just a little, you know, little alignments, like little adjustments, because the reality is that when we talk about a topic like Dharma or, you know, what some people might call purpose, it can conjure up these like Instagrammable images of like quitting your job, you know, going backpacking through the Himalayas or moving to Florence <laughs> and becoming a painter, right? Hashtag but, new life, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But for the vast majority of us, that's not an option. Yeah. You know, we've got bills yeah. to pay. We've got we've got commitments to keep. We've got kids to drop off. We've got in a lot of cases aging parents to take care of. You know, blowing up our own lives isn't necessarily an option. And what I what what I came to really love about dharma, this ageless practice that sort of has been passed down over millennia from east to west, from ancient to modern, is that you don't have to abandon your life mm -hmm. in order to transform the way that you live. Yeah. You can start to become more of who you are and express that through what you do through these little adjustments. What I really appreciate about, about this topic and this book is really the clarity that you brought around that there's a difference between your essence and the expression of that essence. And that got me thinking back on my own life. And I'm wondering if you could speak to maybe some of the frustrations that might arise, like uh, some examples of frustrations that might arise if someone fails to see the difference between those two things. Because I know for a long time, I thought they were one and the same. My essence is yeah. the same as my expression of the essence. But now yeah. I'm realizing that those are, those are two very different things. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm so glad that 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 landed with you because it landed with me. You know, I think we get raised in sort of what I call an occupation mindset, mm -hmm. right? When we, when you're a kid, you, what do you ask? Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. And the answer that, that people were expecting was, was an occupation, doctor, lawyer, you know, accountant, actor, you know, these are, these are occupations, right. but essence goes deeper than that. It's, mm -hmm. you know, I, I love to nurture people. I love to assemble things. I love to help people grow. I love to tell stories. The, the, that is that is at the essence level. And the good news about that is that when you can start to tap into that essence, what you might find is that there are many, many different ways to express that essence. Mm -hmm. You know, In chapter one of the book, the first real story that I tell is about a woman named Mila, who is a project manager inside a big company. And 
she is miserable and she is sort of looking back on her life and decides that, hey, like what would have been the right move for her would have been to be a teacher. And there's a lot of regret around it because she's like, that would have made me happy if I was a mm -hmm. teacher. But she doesn't necessarily have the financial flexibility to do that anymore. She has a couple of kids. She has a family. They rely on her health care insurance. They rely on her salary. And so she's feels trapped. You know, she's showing up, she's doing the work, but it's more of a paycheck than it is a passion. Yeah. But one day she ends up having a really simple but important conversation with a mentor who basically just asks her, hey, what is it about teaching that you love? What is it about teaching that captivates you? And as Mila took like more than a surface level look at that question, as she started to really kind of think about that, she went beneath the title of teacher and into the essence of teaching. And what she realized is that she just loves helping people grow. Yeah. Like that's that's her that's her essence. That is who she is. She loves helping people grow. And when she started to think back on her life, she saw all these moments where she was helping the other kids in her neighborhood learn how to ride bikes. She was teaching her baby cousin how to crawl. Like that's just who she was in her nature. But when she was able to tap into that essence, all of a sudden this explosion of possibilities began to arise. Like, yes, teaching was one way to express this essence of helping people grow, but there was like so many others as well. And some yeah. of them didn't require her to blow up her own life. Mm. She ended up making a, a relatively small shift in her career to a training role inside her own company. And once that ended up happening, like everything changed, you mm. know, she became a rising star in the company. Her, you know, her colleagues noticed, her husband noticed, her kids saw their mother come alive in a brand new way. She went from dreading her job to waking up with energy and enthusiasm. And, you know, she didn't have to give up her job. She didn't have to give up her salary. She didn't even have to give up her parking space, you know, yeah. like all that stayed the same. And again, I think it comes back over and over again to this myth that we have to like completely abandon who we are in order to in order to transform the way that we live but oftentimes it's these little things that are right within our reach that can completely transform you know our quality of life yeah i feel that a lot i remember back when i worked at um apple i was there for 11 years in wow. various sales roles in in the retail part of the company and i remember about 8 years in i was like absolutely miserable <laughs> i was so like I just I hated everything about my job and everything about yeah. work. And you know, for a lot of reasons, I had left the church world where I was a pastor uh, for a bunch of years. I created sermons and Bible studies, and I spent my days, you know, meeting with people and talking to them about their life and their problems yeah. and their worries, all these things. And so I got in this job at Apple as like a temporary gig, you know, to till I figured out my next move. And that temporary thing turned into eleven years wow. later. And I can remember you know, feeling so frustrated because for the longest time, I didn't realize that my essence of like creativity and you know, I love to create things. I love to make things with my, with my hands and whether yeah. it's art or, you know, involves a lot of color, you know, things that encourage people, inspire people, help people. I didn't realize that I, you know, that had a variety of different ways that it could be expressed in lots of different contexts. But, mm. you know, because I thought I thought I could only express it through writing or graphic design or podcasting or blogging or whatever. And so that I'd have to like leave Apple. I'd have to leave the retail world in order to fully kind of express it. So I had this mentality for like the longest time that 
Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to clock out of Apple, you know, at five o'clock or whatever and go home to express my essence in my podcast mm-hmm. or my writing or like my side gig and then clock back in the next day. But I have to put my essence on hold, kind of like what you said earlier, go work the eight to five job and be yeah. miserable. But then I realized that there are ways like even with Apple that maybe I could use my creative essence. And so yeah. towards the end of my time there, I got to build like a bi-weekly newsletter for the store and I wow. got to use you know, all the different design things that I wanted, you know, to make this newsletter. And it was like, nobody ever seen a newsletter like this before, you know, cause I put like all of my energy into it. And then I got to help put together various like meetings and trainings and things for new hires and stuff like that. I can remember like I would carry around in my pocket, you mentioned this in the book, but I would do this too, carry around in my pocket, like a little notebook. And I would read on my, on my lunch break and I would jot down like ideas for my podcast and my blog wow. and things like that. And so but my point is like in all of this stuff that you just told about the teacher, this part of your book, you know, I think that it's, there's something so freeing for someone who feels like their job that they have to have in order to make money is robbing them of their essence. Because when you allow yourself to get creative and figuring out like how to express your essence anywhere, I think that like really changes everything. I, I, lo- I love that story, Glenn. I really do. And, and like, I, I, as soon as you, you know, as soon as I started to kind of listen to your show even, and I was aware of sort of your background too, mm-hmm. but I, I was wondering about that. I was like, wow, I wonder sort of, you know, with your evangelical sort of background and then your work at Apple, I wonder what the common sort of essences there. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it sounds like there was, which is ultimately sort of, there was a creativity maybe that even fueled both. Or And, and it sounds like with the newsletter, there was a storytelling element as well. Of course, yeah. that's happening here at the podcast too. And I wonder for you too, because I, when I listen to your show, I say to get this sense of kind of permanent student from you. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that, is that accurate? Very much, very much. Yeah. There's definitely a curiosity that shines through your work. And, and so I, 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 that was the other thing I was wondering about you is I wonder for Glenn, if like curiosity is this is this deep part of sort of what took you into the evangelical world and searching but then also took you into apple and and, and is now taking you into the obviously everything you're doing around podcasting yeah i mean I, I was talking to my wife about this the other night that i loved school i mean i went to bible college i have two degrees from seminary and i love school mostly because i just love digging into ideas and yeah. i loved you know, like paper, writing papers was like my jam. You know, if a, if a professor said you can have a final exam of a 20 page paper or like a 20 multiple choice, I would take the 20 page paper because I just love to write things, you know, and create things and like build some kind of idea. And so digging into these ideas was huge for me. And now yeah. with the podcast too, like I have a lot of people who say like, why don't you, you know, like do some like debates on the podcast. I'm like, I said, debates are, I said, that's like boring for me. I said, I don't really like that kind of stuff. I said, I would much rather have somebody on the podcast who maybe thinks entirely differently than me, but yeah. ask them, tell me what you think about this and why it's so important to you. Cause I want to understand <laughs> where you're coming from, you know? And I feel like I can have a deeper appreciation for people who are different than me. Like you had said earlier, if, if you know their story and you hear why they're so passionate about something, we can get to the end of the discussion and not agree but I have a much deeper appreciation for you and where you've come from. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think one of the things I really appreciate about your your work, and and I think you said this, I, I can't remember exactly where, but I remember reading it from you, is that, you know, it's this shift from a, a world of black and white into a yep. world of color. Yeah. 
which I think ultimately is what we're talking about with essence and expression as well. You know, when you feel fixated on this idea and so many people are, I was as well, that I have to have a certain job. I have to have a certain job title in order to be happy. That's a pretty black and white world. And I think ultimately it leads to a lot of frustration because there's a lot of people out there with regrets on, hey, I should have chosen this path, but I chose the yeah. one that I'm on and I'm miserable. But when you can go beneath the, the occupation mindset and into the essence mindset, coming back to you know what I love to do, like what is it that sort of makes me tick for you, it, it was creating and building things. All of a sudden, there's an explosion of possibilities and yeah. you move from this black and white world into a world of color. That's right. So how does somebody go about finding their essence. Maybe somebody's listening and they're like, okay, this is this is all great, fine and dandy. Yeah. But I'm working yeah. this job, whatever, and I'm barely I'm barely making it through my days. And like you said earlier, you come home, you got kids, you got bills, you got all different things. Yeah. How does somebody go about starting to figure out what their essence really is? I think the good news about Dharma is that it isn't something that you need to go on a big search to mm. go find. Yeah. Um, you know, it's already it's already inside of you. It, it, it's it's kind of like Michelangelo who would look at a block of marble and say the sculpture is already inside. And what I have to do is I have to chisel away the layers that are hiding it. Mm -hmm. And in essence is very much the same way. You know, you, uh, anybody who's listening right now, I can, I can, I can almost promise you that you have been in touch with your essence in the past. Now that may have been last week. It may have been last year or maybe when you were a kid, but there, you have been in touch with your essence before, but it gets buried. It gets buried underneath the priorities of life. It gets buried underneath the day-to-day. It gets buried underneath the obligations. And it, it also gets buried under other people's expectations and judgments as well, right? There, there's a lot that can hide who we are from, from you know, what we're realizing about ourselves on a daily basis. So the the work is is you know, to start to chisel away little by little so that we can start to uncover a little more of who we are. Mm. And in the book, I offer certain ways to do that, these little chisels that we can use. And it's not, you're not going on a massive excavation. You can chisel just 1%, uh, you know, every every week or so. And some of this is just self-inquiry. It's asking yourself certain questions. One of the questions that I think is really important is even if I don't like the job that I'm in right now, what are the bright moments? What are the what what are the bright spots of my week? You know, between the hours of eight and five, if that's a job you work, even if the vast majority of it it just feels like it's you know checking the box and just waiting for the clock to sort of you know hit five o'clock or six o'clock so you can leave. Mm-hmm. What are these little moment, these little glimmers that actually do light you up? Mm-hmm. And you know, if you can start to tune in to these little glimmers, even if they're fleeting, even if they only last for seconds, that can actually be a really powerful way to sort of bring you back or a window at least back into what your essence is. Like like for me, for example, you know, I, I you know, I mentioned this. I, I worked in tech for a long time. I didn't like working in tech. You know, I was doing it because I felt like that's what the cool kids were doing it. I, I felt like I was doing it because it was a way to make, you know, a lot of money. You know, the I when I graduated from law school, you know, the iPhone had just launched and it felt like there was almost this gold rush to Silicon Valley for people to sort of like figure out like how to make money and, and you know, get ahead. And and I followed that, even though I sort of knew that wasn't necessarily deep down, that wasn't necessarily like what was right for me. And as a result, I spent, you know, over a decade of my career kind of walking a path that I felt like was not mine. It was somebody else's. Mm. And but but what I did notice, though, 
is that in each of these jobs, there were certain moments, these little bright spots that would light me up. Anytime I could interact with a customer story, I felt lit up. Yeah. My favorite, my favorite thing to do was if I was listening to a customer story and then I could go share that with my team, mm -hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, like there's something here because I, 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 it was, for me, it wasn't just like, Hey, this customer came to our site and they were able to do this. It was kind of like, Hey, like there's this single mom, she's based in Kansas and she had this problem and, and then she was able to, you know, you know, solve it using this, this product that we built. And that gave me like a lot of like pride. I noticed like this energetic hit and that wasn't the majority of my day doing that wasn't even in my job description, but I started to realize, wow, storytelling is something that really lights me up. And so how do I start to bring just a little bit more of that into every day? And like you, Glenn, I started to spend a little bit of time in between, you know, meetings or on lunch breaks, writing things down on little scraps of paper and, you know, little things I was noticing, little, little, like little angles for stories. And ultimately, you know, those, those turned into eventually blog posts and eventually they turned into articles and, you know, later on in life, they eventually turned into books. Um, but I didn't quit my job as a result of this, you know, and I never sort of raised my hand and told the world I'm a storyteller. I just had this thing that I was starting to integrate into my life just a little bit more each day. Yeah. You know, I was, again, thinking back to, to Apple and I was talking earlier about how when I was a pastor, you know, I love to create different things. And one of the things was I liked going out like to the diner, local diner with people and hearing about their problems. And we would, you know, sometimes we would create solutions together and you know, we would talk through different things. And I realized that Apple's like, you know, I, I missed that kind of thing. But then I started to realize that like customers come through the door with problems all the time, <laughs> you know, and they might not be coming through the door with spiritual problems, although maybe they do have some spiritual yeah, problems, but yeah. they come through the door with problems. And I started to see like, you know, my time with them, if I spend a half an hour with them going through different Macs and different, you know, um, solutions, you know, eventually we build some kind of solution for them and we send them back out the door, you know, equipped with something to do something in their life. And so I started to kind of reframe my days like around those kinds of things. And that started to kind of lighten the weight a little bit. But they're also like those one-off stories. Like you said, like this isn't something that was like every day. But I can remember like one time this woman came in and she was literally hysterical, like hyperventilating because her father had passed away and she got a new phone and she lost all of his voicemails. Wow. And it was it was really, really bad. And we she was there like all day and I spent a few hours with her and we we got the voicemails back somehow. I don't know how. <laughs> I don't know if it was prayer. I don't know what it was, but somehow these voicemails ended up coming back. Oh, and this wow. woman, I mean, she just like collapsed in her arms. Like she was mm. just so grateful. And I thought to myself, I'm like, you know what? This is this has that pastoral feel to it, like where we did something for this woman. And we mm. we literally could have changed the trajectory of her life. Because if she would have left without those voicemails, like who knows what that would have done to her. Wow. But she left and she had those in her hand and it changed everything. So I started to kind of reframe my day. What I'm saying is try to see it like, you know what, like I'm working in Apple, working in this tech world as a retail job. But what if I'm able to figure out what really makes me tick and try to reframe my day-to-day -day activities in Apple around those things that make me tick? And although it wasn't a perfect solution, you know, because I wasn't super happy there, you know, going forward. But at the end of the day, for those last three years, when I looked at it that way, it made things a lot, a lot better for me. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And, you know, I mean, I think we don't have to necessarily 
like marry our identity to our job description. That's right. Right. You are not your job. Yeah. You can choose to be whoever you want, you know, and, and, you know, even if that's not what people sort of like, you know, box you in at, at, at your job, you can show up as a storyteller. You can yeah. show up as an assembler. You can yeah. show up as a problem solver. That spirit, that essence can shine through everything that you do. You yeah. know, for me, I, I, I would carry around a little piece of paper that said, you are a storyteller. Mm. And I would carry that into my 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 tech jobs where where I had nothing would had nothing to do with storytelling, yeah. but knowing that that was who I was allowed me to remind myself to let that shine through my work, you know, in the way that I paid attention to other people's stories, the way that I spoke to colleagues and learned their stories, yeah. and the way that I started to express myself even in day to day routine emails. Um, you know, uh, one of my favorite stories in, inside the book is the story of of, uh, of a nurse who really wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was it was a very classic, again, story where she had spent way too long on a certain career path. She had she had worked her way up. She was sort of mid mid career. And she wasn't going to like throw that all away to like go pursue a dream for like writing. Like she didn't have that financial flexibility. But what she was able to do is she started to see that patient paperwork was an opportunity for her to express herself as a writer. So most other sort of clinicians would type out the clinical details of a patient, you know, and hit print. But she decided to start taking her time. Mm -hmm. She decided to start writing about who the patient was, who did they love, what did they love to do at home? What did they really care about in life? And she would tell these almost illustrative stories inside this patient paperwork. And each of these forms almost turned into these like mini novels that started to kind of be tossed around, like passed around the hospital from doctors and nurses who would read these like these stories and they it would remind them of the humanity of their work. Yeah. And this this nurse, Karen, became this renowned storyteller inside the hospital system. And she was starting to express herself as a writer in a very meaningful way. Now, her title was still nurse. She was still ER nurse. But the the spirit in which she showed up with every day was now that of a writer. And you say in the book, she went on to to be a writer for The Good Doctor, right? I think that show, yeah, and, The Good Doctor. Exactly. And, an, and another one, right? Yeah, exactly. And eventually, yeah. eventually, you know, that just, that just grew, you know, which but there crazy. Were, yeah. There were years and years where she was just inside inside the hospital. You know, in, in some ways, it's like I even debated in the book as to whether that last part of her being recruited and eventually becoming like a screenwriter and yeah. and uh, like it was it even it wasn't, you know, it's a it's a nice detail at the end of that story. Yeah. But I think the the punchline it actually comes way before that, where now you have this nurse that is showing up each day. And she is able to bring who she is to what she does, right? Yeah. She's able to align that just a little bit more. And it didn't require blowing up her life. It didn't require leaving herself behind. So you were asking before, like, what what were the, what are the things and that we can do to start to come back to our essence, right? Yeah. And we, we, we talked about bright spots, like these bright spots can serve as sort of windows. The other, the other thing, the other question that I posed to the reader in the book, I've posed it to myself as well is, what would you do for free? Uh-huh. What would you yeah. do if you weren't being compensated? And and that's not to say by any means that we need to go, you know, put our financial our financial sort of lot in jeopardy in, in order to go pursue, because like we have bills to pay, right? Yeah. But but I think that when we can just do the thought experiment of putting aside compensation, putting aside money, 
and really just ask ourselves purely, what is it that we would do even if we weren't compensated for it? Yeah. That can offer you a very clear window into your dharma, into your essence. Like I think for you, Glenn, I mean, when you started this podcast, it's obviously been very successful, but when you started it, what like what role did financial success play in your decision to do it in the first place? Uh, nothing. Yeah, nothing. It's, I was just, while you were talking, I was thinking about that very thing because like I, I would, I was working at Apple and I would get up, I mean, we had an infant at the time. And so I would get up, you know, early in the morning and I would be up late at night working on this thing. Yeah. And I had no idea why, other than the fact that I loved creating it. I loved having these conversations. I loved interacting with people's work. Like it just brought me so much joy. And so I would go to Apple, I would do the thing and I would come home and I would really look forward to just getting behind this computer with these books and this microphone and making something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I love that. I mean, I think that one of the underpinnings of Dharma that has become clear to me over time, at first very hard to grasp, is that there is a difference between outer success and inner success. Yeah. And outer success is, you know, it's status, it's wealth, it's um, potentially fame, if that's your thing. You know, inner success is different. It's it's joy, it's meaning, it's fulfillment. And, you know, the the idea of dharma isn't to shame outer success. Yeah. You know, if you if you are ambitious and you want to achieve things, I think that's wonderful. I mm-hmm. I, I I know that I am. I want to I want to make an impact on the world. I want to I want to, you know, provide a nice life for my family. I want all those things. I think the 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 thing though is that, you know, outer success while wonderful is never really going to lead us to inner success. Yeah. Right. I think that that we all sort of get to this point where we realize that the that even as we're getting these little accomplishments along the way, the feeling that we get from them can be quite temporary. And yeah. we are constantly sort of in this cycle of satisfaction and dissatisfaction, yeah. right? And when we're constantly riding this cycle of looking for the next thing, the next client, the next deal, the next thing to make us happy, that that engine runs out of gas, right? Yeah. We start to get exhausted because we realize there really is no point of arrival. Yeah. But if we can start to kind of reverse the flow and we can start to actually do things that really matter to us, even if it's little things at a time, and we can start to bring more of who we are into what we do, well, then we start to experience this idea of inner success along the way. And, you know, unsurprisingly, you know, when you are coming from that place, you tend to be bringing a higher level of creativity, a higher level of energy, a higher yeah. level of enthusiasm to the work, yeah. which, you know, in many cases, I would say more cases than not, end up leading to higher degrees of outer success as well. That's right. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong. Like you said, there's nothing wrong with wanting that outer success. I think it's a matter of knowing it, it's no, it's having your priorities in line in terms of knowing what you, what your, what your goals are. Right. Like I think for me, you know, thinking I've had a lot of people approach me over the, especially over the last like year um, and have said like, oh, your podcast is getting, you know, it's kind of reaching more people like you should do, um, you know, have people come on and sponsor your show, you know, and mm. you get sponsorships and you can get some money and a lot of people inviting me to come on their podcasts. And mm-hmm. like I said to my wife, I'm, I was just, just a couple months ago, I said to her, I'm like, I just don't feel like I want to go. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm going to lose something. In myself mm-hmm. if I go down that that road because like there's something so I think simple 
for me about just turning on the microphone and talking and not having to worry about all, you know, people who are sponsoring the show and different things like that. And, you know, going onto people's podcast to talk is nice, but I feel like I just enjoy sitting and picking people's brain about different things. And I said, I feel like that's just me. And she said to me, she's like, stay true to yourself then, you know, stay true to what it is that lights you up inside. You know, maybe that will change down the road. Maybe other things will come your way. But for now, like if this is what makes you happy, then that's what you need to do. That's your priority. Oh man, I love that. And how amazing is it that your wife is, is there for you to help you stay true to yourself? That's right. Well, Sunil, we are out of, I could talk to you all day, man. I feel the same, man. I have so many more questions. I have a whole list of other questions (laughs) I just didn't get to. (laughs) Well, let's do a part two sometime. I would love that. Thank you so much for your time. And real quick, where can people go um, online to find you and your work? Yeah, just go to, if you're on Instagram, just go to at Sunil Gupta. It's S-U-N-E-E-L-G-U-P-T-A. Um, I put all sorts of like new, new, new stuff out there and research and, and, uh, ideas and, and that'll be a good way for us to connect. Awesome. I'll put the links in the show notes and we'll do it again soon. All right, Glenn. Thanks so much. Thank you.